I think that's the uh, the essence of for me my success. There were yeah. so many so many guys that were more talented than me in the early years, but I just loved it and I wasn't afraid of uh, of working really hard. And uh, I think if you've got that passion and that work ethic, you can do anything. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Chris Kluge. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on. And so always like to start like, in the hospital, you're born. Do you immediately jump on a snowboard and just start racing down the halls? Like, give, take me back. Where did it all start? You know, uh, Eric, I was an avid skateboarder as a kid. You were. I had a, had a vert ramp in my backyard that my father and I built. And I uh, was also on the ski team as a, as a youngster. And where were you? Where did you grow up? I was born here uh, in Colorado. Grew up in Bend, Oregon. And nice. started... Started skiing in Vail and uh, then skiing in uh, on Mount Bachelor. And were your and parents? The, big, uh, were they? Big, ahead, sorry. Were your parents big extreme sports people or skiers? Not or at all. My dad's from Chicago. My mom's from Philadelphia. Both uh, very enthusiastic skiers. And my mom's uh, got the old Arlberg ski style with her skis just an inch apart. It's hysterical. Yeah. But uh, no, they're both really. I don't know if anyone enjoys skiing more than my father. He just has a smile ear to ear every time he's out there, but awesome. not a, uh, not an expert skier by any means, but uh, really enjoys it. And so, and so they got it started at a really early age. As soon as I could walk, I was on skis at uh, age two, just like my kids. That's what uh, you do in mountain towns. Yep. Um, but I saw the very first snowboard and I said, that's skateboarding on snow and I've got to try it. And, and so I'm this curious was, going uh, back to that. Just real quick with the vert ramp and everything, what caused your dad to want to like support you that much with like skateboarding? Like, it's okay. Like you're a kid, you want to skateboard fine, but to actually, you know, it happens. It's not that uncommon, but still what drove your dad to wanting to push you on the skateboard? He's a, he was an awesome dad and uh, could just see that that's something I was passionate about. And yep. and he has a, a woodworking and um, sort of a craftsman background was always good at, at building stuff. And I think it was a great project for uh, a father and son. And so we did it. And, nice. and I think it's, it's the adage that, you know, if your kids are doing things, you want them doing it at your house. Yeah. So you can, uh, you know, be involved and, uh, and be a part of that. And uh, great lessons learned for me as a, as a father of a seven and 10 year old now that are both ironically into skateboarding and snowboarding and skiing and, and all of the above. Um, but yeah, it was just a neat thing that we did together. And, uh, I was signed up for the ski team. My mom, you know, signed me up for the ski team. My brother was doing that. And that seemed like the path. And then in the middle of, of uh, pursuing that, I was only, you know, uh, 10 years old, uh, nine, 10 years old. But in the middle of that, I saw the very first Burton backhill. Yep. And, uh, and I said, wait a second here. I, uh, I got to try that. <laughs> and my mom's like, what? I just signed you up for the ski team. I just invested in this whole program. And I'm yep. like, mom, I got a snowboard. <laughs> and I was, uh, I was such a, uh, an avid skateboarder that it, I looked at it and I said, that's skateboarding on snow. I've got to try it. And I yep. did. And, you know, this was uh, in the early 80s. I'm dating myself a little bit, but it was uh, glorified shaped pieces of plywood 
um, leash that went to the nose of the board, uh, moon boots, duct tape, and uh, <laughs> bungee strap bindings. But, uh, you know, I just fell in love with it, that sensation of, uh, of tipping a snowboard on edge and floating through the pow. That's all you could ride in the early days because the Burton Performer that I got for that Christmas uh, had a water ski skag down the middle and two, like, rudders on, on each side. It was uh, huh. ridiculous. And the bindings were mounted about maybe four or five, six inches from the swallowtail uh, end of the snowboard. It was pretty funny. Yep. And yeah, not, not customizable at that point, I assume. You can set the bindings, slide them back where you want them, depending on the type of snow. Like, <laughs> it's just hanging on for dear life. Every, every uh, snowboard outing was customizable, was an opportunity to improve your equipment, to improve your technique and uh, a new adventure. And, and you'd see another snowboarder on Mount Bachelor and you just gravitate to each other. Yeah. And, and it would be nice to meet them, but immediately you're, you're looking down at their equipment. Like, what are you doing with your boots? What are you doing with your bindings? Where are you positioning them? Yeah. And, and you felt like you were really on the forefront of something special. Yeah. And uh, we were all trying to figure it out. So as much as not only would you check out each other's equipment and, and share ideas and collaborate, but then you'd go ride together. Yeah. And I remember when uh, Damian Sanders came to Mount Bachelor and I was a little Grom and chasing him around was just like a highlight of my childhood. He was such a ripper and I got to ride with him. And then uh, Craig Kelly, Mikey Ranquette, uh, Kelly Joe Legaz, um, all of these guys, uh, Robbie Morrow, Shannon Melhews, uh, Michelle Taggart, all of the Salem crew came yep. down to Central Oregon and, and rode and uh, Craig Kelly and, and the Washington crew uh, came down and, and lived there for a few winters. And so I was the young Grom chasing all these guys around and, and got yep. to follow my my heroes and uh, and mentors and some of the best snowboarders in the world. And I was going to ask, like, at what point, obviously you fell in love with it like day one, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And so at what point did you go, this is going to be my career? You know, Eric, I, I heard people say years later, could you, or ask me the question, would you ever have imagined that snowboarding is where it is today? You know, 22 foot, perfectly dragon cut uh, pipes and the level yeah. of riding we're seeing at the X Games and the Olympics and um, the participation that we see today and the, the kind of equipment uh, that yeah. we laugh about where I started and where it is today. You and I just talked about our favorite uh, Burton snowboards and, and I yeah. ride a Custom X and, and the technology that's gone into that. People say, could you ever imagine where the sport is today? And I said, yes. If I, if I could have bought stock in snowboarding the first day I started, I would have. I yeah. knew it was going to explode because I fell in love with it the first day I tried it. And, uh, and I'm, you know, 30 years later, uh, still love it just as much as the day I started uh, back in the early 80s. That's awesome. And so at what point did you start, like, taking it to another level and competing how were you? Is it right away? Did you start joining like whatever local competition there was or? Yeah. Mal Bachelor hosted uh, an early competition that included uh, a racing event um, and some, some early freestyle events. Yeah. And one of the neat things in the early years, you showed up with one snowboard and you competed in all of the events on that snowboard. Yeah. And the overall was a pretty prestigious title. Yeah. And like every sport, snowboarding was trying to figure out the right competition formula. Yep. So early years, we had moguls. We had kind of the, <laughs> the racing event, which would typically be like a Marlboro ski challenge, uh, you know, like a, a dual giant slalom. 
Uh-huh. Um, we had uh, then, of course, the early half pipes where we dig it with a shovel and then judge each other, which yeah. was pretty funny. Uh, and then in y- later years, they started to develop, you know, some of the some of the earliest versions of border cross. And so, how uh, old were you in that first competition? Say it again. How old were you for that first competition? Um, well, I started snowboarding at about uh, nine, ten years old, and a few years yeah. later, I saw the first. The okay. earliest competitions pop up. So yep. uh, I was probably in, you know, 11, 12 years old. Yeah, got it. And so you're, I'm, again, you're in middle school, you're starting to go into high school. Like, would, were you starting to think, what are you going to do with your life? As you said, you knew it was going all the way, but did you, at that point already, were you like, I'm just going to be a snowboarder? I don't need college or like, how were you looking at it? Good question. Really, from those earliest competitions, then I started competing all over the Northwest series. Did the legendary uh, Mount Baker bank slalom many times, did all of the Northwest series events. My father took me out to Breckenridge for the world championships and uh, got to race against, you know, all the best European racers. And I was still just a young American Grom just trying to figure it out. And uh, but guys like Kevin Delaney and Dave Dowd. And of course, uh, as I mentioned, Craig Kelly, Sean Palmer, all of the best racers, freestylers, all of the best riders in the world were there. And that was a real eye opener for me that, hey, this is uh, this is a sport that, you know, I'd like to get better at and and compete at the highest level. And so I really pursued that, got to do um, U.S. Opens as a junior rider out of Stratton Mountain, Vermont. And and I went on the uh, the body glove uh, Nissan U.S. Pro Tour and competed on that through high school. And then in uh, 1990, did my first International World Cup uh, over in Garmisch-Partenkirchen in Germany. Uh-huh. And uh, in 1991, this is really an interesting story. I, I had an opportunity to go play small college football huh. and, and really enjoyed my, my college football years. When you compete in an individual sport yeah. and then you play a team sport, you just you so enjoy the camaraderie and the teamwork and the collective goal of, of 11 guys yeah. working together towards trying to get across the finish line or, or the goal line in this case. Yeah. And I really enjoyed that. What position were you? I'm sorry. What position did you play? Uh, I played quarterback. Nice. And I had some opportunities to play uh, small college football and uh, my, my heart was really in the snowboarding. So I actually went and did a PG year at Deerfield Academy uh, back in Massachusetts and uh, to play football, continue my academics and decide, all right, am I going off to college to play football or am I going to pursue the snowboarding? And yeah. that winter in 1990, 91, I won the World Cup full time and uh, was go. on the World Cup for 20 years. And, and my heart <laughs> just told me that's that's what I wanted to do. And it was probably at that time, not a very smart decision because snowboard was real. Snowboarding was really in its infancy. Olympics weren't on the horizon. There was only yep. a handful of guys that were making a living doing it. And uh, I turned down a, you know, a fantastic education at Trinity College and, and later at Middlebury College to pursue the snowboarding circuit. And I'll tell you what, it was the greatest education in the world. I got to travel the world on my snowboard, doing what I love to do, and ultimately participate in, in three Winter Olympic Games and uh, travel the world for 20 years living out of a yeah. yeah, not not bad. Um, so it all worked out. Yeah. And so I was, I'm curious in those early days when you, you know, you, you say, I'm not, how were your parents first off? Were they like, we get it. We know our son, he's going to go snowboard and that's not something we're going to fight. Or were they like, you should go to college back up. There's no money in this. How are they reactive to it? No, super supportive. They could tell where my heart was and, and how, uh, 
you know, how enthusiastic I was about it. And they just, mm-hmm. you know, I think that they, you have an opportunity to speak to so many people and, and you've had such success in your career that you can see when somebody's so passionate about something. And that's, yep. I think that's the, uh, the essence of, for me, my success. There were yeah. so many, so many guys that were more talented than me in the early years, but I just loved it. And I wasn't afraid of, uh, of working really hard. And uh, I think if you've got that passion and that work ethic, you can do anything. Yep. Totally agree. Um, and yeah, I think that, and also I think that's probably what life's about. Like you could have taken another path and not done what you're passionate about, not done what your life calling was and what you love. And, you know, you just wouldn't have lived as great of a life. Like it's just that it is that simple sometimes. And so those early years when there wasn't a lot of money in it, like, were you getting by off the prize money off of sponsors or how, how were you getting by, so to speak? in those early years when snowboarding was still just getting going. I started on, uh, on uh, the Burton, on a Burton back hill and then a performer, mm-hmm. my uh, performer that's right behind me here. That's awesome. Next to my uh, guitars. Um, and then I, 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 got, I got my for, guitars right here, but the snowboard, I love it. The snowboard's sure still much, down. In, <laughs> what's I'm that? sure you're much better than me. I'm better on the snowboard than I am on the guitar, but. Uh, I would I'm actually argue that you're probably better on both, but I've definitely, <laughs> I've done, but I have done both at the same time. Nice. I, I took it. my guitar snowboarding once up in uh, what was it? it up in uh, Tahoe, one of the mountains. I forgot which one. Uh, but yeah, Heavenly. That's what it was. We we're riding Heavenly, and I had a, I brought my snowboard with me or my guitar it. with me. It was fun. That's uh, that's <laughs> talent right there. Um, I actually uh, rode for Burton in the uh, early yeah. '90s, kind of right out yeah. of high school, and signed with them, and was with them for my whole career. Nice. So I was uh, I was able to uh, pursue you know, my world cup dreams and, and they helped support me. And then, but, but it was really tight. I mean, I would really take the winnings and that would sort of sustain me through my summer and off season training and, and enable yep. me to, uh, again, pursue this whole, uh, snowboarding dream. And it wasn't cheap. I mean, to do the whole world yep. cup season was for a kid out of high school was 25, 30,000 bucks. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was, uh, it was tight, but it was also super fun. Yeah. And so at what point did you hit a point where you started making okay money or was it really just tight through the Olympics through all of it? No, it was, for me, the real turning point was when I won the U.S. Open in 1997. Uh-huh. And then uh, they announced that the IOC announced that snowboarding would be an Olympic sport in 1998. Got it. And uh, I won the first two Olympic qualifiers and was headed to Nagano, Japan as the first ever uh, U.S. Olympic snowboarder. Yep. And, uh, yeah, it was, I, I ended up sixth place there and, uh, that was kind of the first time I really started making some money in snowboarding and was yep. able to, uh, not just get to the next season. Yeah. Got it. And was that through sponsors or was it actually the money that the IOC created or? Yeah, both, uh, both through, uh, primarily sponsors and winnings. Yep. And so talking about you go to the Olympics, you've been, it's the first time it's ever been in the Olympics. You're coming in as the guy to beat, right? Um, I won the two qualifiers right before the yeah. Olympics and was definitely riding pretty well. And I, I don't know if I was a favorite, but maybe a contender would be uh, would be the right uh, the right description. And not to dig in, but I know po- at least getting on podium is a big thing or a medal uh, at the Olympics. When you like, did you did something happen that put you in sixth, or was it just there were a lot of great snowboarders and you happened to hit sixth? Um, you know, I was off to a great start in Nagano. Uh, I was in the silver medal position after the first run and uh-huh. in a great position to, as you said, bring home a shiny necklace on the second yeah. run. 
And you recognize at the Olympics that it's the, um, you know, the Super Bowl of winter sports and um, that everybody's going for uh, their best performance and trying to bring home a medal. Yeah. And you don't, I never accomplished anything great in my life without some risk and without going for it. And so that second round, I put my foot on the gas and hammered down on the top section. I was actually in the gold medal position, having a fantastic top half of the course. And the bottom half, I, uh, I hooked my arm in one of the gates that we, that we turn around, sort of spun me sideways and lost my speed. But uh, when you're racing, you don't, you know, you don't call timeout and try yep. to uh, fix it. You just keep fighting for that finish line. And um, I reached down and tried to tr trip the timer and, and stop the clock and hoping and praying it'd be enough to stay on the podium. And unfortunately, in Nagano, it was sixth place. And I, uh, I shared the story uh, with you previously, but I was just devastated. I was at the bottom of Mount Yakibatai in Shigokogen, Japan. And I looked up at the scoreboard and it said sixth place. And I thought, man, how did I just blow that opportunity? You know, this is a could very well be a once in a lifetime opportunity for me. And I had uh, some other serious uh, health concerns going on with a failing liver and uh, was actually at that time on a transplant waiting list for uh, a life-saving liver transplant. And so not only do uh, the Olympics come around every four years and you may or may not qualify in four years, but I was also dealing with uh, some other uh, health challenges and didn't know if I'd be alive or around in four years. Yep. And with, to talk about the liver, so when did you learn you had, there was something wrong with your liver? Was it right before the Olympics? Did you go into this with this weight on your chest as well? Or it's kind of in the early mid nineties, I was diagnosed through a routine physical oh. uh, and showed high liver enzymes. I didn't know what the hell a liver enzyme was. I said, well, more's better, right doc. And he said, not in this case, took us about a year and a half to diagnose what it was at that time. They sent, sent me down to Denver and the, uh, the liver uh, specialist down there and, they confirmed that it was a, a condition called PSC, the same thing that led to the death of one of my boyhood football heroes, Walter Payton, mm -hmm. and uh, sat me down and, and told me that I had this condition and one day I need a liver transplant. I remember looking around the room thinking, you know, who are they talking to? They can't be talking to me. Yeah. I feel like a million bucks. Literally, I'm, I'm getting ready Olympic. for the Olympics. Yeah, exactly. I was in total denial and, and took me quite a few years Fair. to realize that they were actually right. Yeah. Did you f have any symptoms of it at that point in the Olympics or were you still just, you knew the science, but you didn't really feel it? Yeah, that's exactly right. I was totally asymptomatic and felt yeah. like a million bucks and was uh, doing what I love to do. Yeah. Uh, and they didn't really know the timeline on it, but they said, eventually you're going to need a transplant then. Got it. I was put on the transplant waiting list and uh, waited for about six years. Uh -huh. Finally got that call in 2000. And uh, oh, so just my, post Olympics. So before the next Olympics. Olympics. Yeah. yeah. And what did you have plans? So you finished in six. Did you go? How long did it take you to go? Well, screw it. I want to go again. Or were you just immediately like, well, I got to give it another shot. Like, where was your head at? <laughs> yeah. In the uh, in the finish line, two seconds after I, I crossed the um, the finish and, and was taking my snowboard off and, and heading for the exit corral. I said, I'm coming back in four years. I'm going to get the job done. I knew of course that Salt Lake city, uh, had been awarded the 2002 Olympics and six hours from my home in Aspen, Colorado. I said, I'm going to be there. Yeah. And this time I'm, uh, I'm not coming up short. I'm bringing home a, uh, an Olympic medal. Nice. And so, and then, but then a year later you end up in surgery to get a new liver. 
And did, were you still like, did you know that was coming when you were leaving? Like, did you, were you still confident? Like, I'm still going to the Olympics. I, I knew ever, whatever, this major surgery, I'll recover. I'll be fine. Like, how was your head going into that? No, I think I was still somewhat in denial uh, in 1998. Sometimes that's a good thing, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> but I was on a waiting list and, and knew that eventually, I didn't know if it was one or five or 10 years down the road, but knew yeah. eventually that I'd have to deal with that. Yeah. And uh, as it was, it was uh, in the summer of 2000. My health uh, really deteriorated. and uh, So you did actually feel the condition at that point it wasn't just we know this is coming so we're going to replace it no and in, in the spring and summer of 2000 i lost about 35 pounds and, and actually became a little jaundiced and um was really uh, my hematocrit you know your red blood cell count dropped to about half of what it typically is mm -hmm. and uh i don't know how many more weeks or months that i had but i was uh my health was deteriorating fast got it and so they found you someone they did. A uh, young 13-year-old boy that died in a gunshot accident in Denver wow. saved my life and two others. And wow. uh, July 28th, I got a liver transplant in 2000 yeah. and uh, really had a miraculous recovery. I was out of the hospital four days later, no uh, infection, no rejection, and was uh, back on a stationary bike just a few days later and a few days so you got a you got you cut open i'm assuming like somewhere in your chest cavity yeah from my sternum all the way down to my right oblique looks like a go. great white took a big bite out of the middle of me yeah so uh, huge it's the most expensive tattoo in the world <laughs> um and and with that you got on an exercise bike a few days later yeah i was able to just ride a light stationary bike a few days later and did like some light isometric uh -huh. arm exercises and my doc said, listen, just walk a lot, walk all over the place oh, for the cool. first couple months. Yeah. So we walked to a Rockies game, to the yeah. Broncos training practice. We walked to uh, and watched the international PGA event uh, in Colorado that year out in Castle Pines. And I remember following uh, Ernie Els and, and Vijay Singh uh, less than a week after a, a life-saving liver transplant. Yeah. And we got to the 18th hole and I'm, I'm following all these guys. My, my transplant doc said to walk and we got to the 18th hole and they finished the tournament. I just laid down on the, on the side of the 18th green. I was so smoked. So I probably, yeah, I was probably so good for the healing though. Cause it gets your blood moving. I know that I've broken enough bones and injured myself enough that I know just moving your body, the yeah. healing process takes off a lot faster. A hundred percent. And that's what I did really for six or seven weeks, just walked all over the place. Yeah. And then uh, seven weeks later, my, my transplant doc said, uh, I don't want you back on a snowboard for eight weeks. And seven weeks later, I was back at uh, the Palmer snowfield at Mount Hood. And is that your personality? Like, you're like, I'm not going to quite listen to you. <laughs> well, I was, uh, I was eager. He knew that yeah. I was uh, ready to get out and test drive this new engine. And yep. uh, seven weeks later, I was back on my snowboard. You get back into snowboarding seven weeks later. Um, and how was it? You've got this new liver. You've, you know, again, the first week I'm sure was, uh, you know, difficult. Your body's still healing from even the surgery, let alone letting, getting the new liver functioning. But now seven weeks later, you jump on a snowboard. How'd it feel? You know, uh, Eric, I was just so happy to be back on my snowboard doing what I love to do again, that I wasn't too concerned about making up for lost ground and, and all of my fellow U.S. snowboard teammates were training so hard. They were in top form and I was like Gumby. I just got cut in half and uh, was bouncing back from uh, a major surgery. And so how was that? Like testing the new engine? How, how did it feel? 
Yeah, it was amazing. You know, you realize how important your core strength is to any motor skill balance type sport, skiing, snowboarding, skateboarding, all the board sports that I love. Yeah. And uh, I literally got cut in half from my sternum to my right oblique. And so I felt like Gumby. And uh, I remember uh, snowboarding back at the Palmer Snowfield at Mount Hood, back uh-huh. on the snowboard, and just loving that sensation of making big, like giant slalom radius fast arcing turns down the Palmer snowfield and just loving Eric being back there uh, doing, doing what I love so much. I do recall a, uh, a cartwheel tomahawk fall, maybe day two or day three. And I got up and I was like, Oh God, is my, is my liver still there? I was nervous that <laughs> I'd opened up my zipper, but it was all good. And, you know, How long did you have that of, zipper by the way, the like sta- whatever the staples or the uh, stitches in there. Um, yeah, I had those in there. I don't know three or four weeks or something. And I think it was Oh, like, so that was all out. So yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm joking, but it was like uh, 36 staples. And uh, I joke, it's the most expensive tattoo in the world. And one <laughs> I'm very, very proud of. Yeah, no, that's great. And so you go, you, you start snowboarding. Were you at that point? Like, yeah, totally. I'm going to go back to the Olympics in two years. Like I'm good. Liver's good. We're good to go. Like, did you have full optimism on what was next? hundred percent. The second yeah. I woke up at uh, seven West on the recovery floor at university hospital, oh. Wow. I woke up and I said, oh, that's how it's supposed to feel. And I knew oh, so right you then, felt the difference right then. hundred percent. You know, I, wow. I never realized that I was running around with such a compromised liver. And when they stuck a brand new, perfectly functioning liver in me, I knew the minute I woke up, I said, oh, that's how it's supposed to feel. And there was Eric, no doubt in my mind that I was going to make it back. Wow. That's awesome. And I so I didn't know I was going to, uh, make it back to my Olympics and uh, win an Olympic medal, but I knew I was going to make it back and at least have the opportunity to do so. So all of that was icing on the cake just a year and a half later. And so I was going to say seven weeks later, you're snowboarding. How quickly did you actually go back into full training uh, for the Olympics other than just riding a little bit? Yeah, just a few months, you know, two, three months. It took me probably six months to fully build my core strength and uh, stabilizing muscles back. Um, But I did win my first World Cup in San Candido, Italy, in the Dolomites, six months after my life-saving liver transplant. And you did. So you entered a World Cup and six months after one of the more major surgeries you can pretty much have. And, <laughs> uh, and you won. I won. And that was really special for me because it was my first World Cup uh, podium after my uh, life-saving liver transplant. And the day before, I was really struggling to my, uh, my dog is outside getting excited about this story as well. <laughs> He's barking in the background. You know, I was, I was really struggling with how to thank my donor family. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had given me this incredible gift and this second chance and really made the most heroic and selfless decision that anyone can make and uh, saved my life and two others. All the while, they'd lost their young 13-year-old boy in a gunshot accident in Denver. And I really struggled with how do you thank somebody for that? And I'm alive and I'm returning to the sport that I love and my Olympic dreams and my family and they'd lost their young boy. And I think that's one of the real um, one of the real challenges of organ donation for the recipients is maybe a little bit of uh, survivor's guilt, if you will. And I I wrote them. uh, I'd struggled with a, a letter. I really wanted to write them, but a simple thank you just didn't seem adequate. And I wrote them a letter the day before uh, winning that World Cup and just said, you know, I thank God every day for being here. And, and I thank uh, I thank you for the second chance at life. And I'm doing what I love to do because of you and your heroic decision. 
And uh, that was a huge weight off my shoulders and uh, won my first World Cup the next day and then got to meet them in person wow. 18 months later in Salt Lake City uh, when I won my bronze medal. Oh, so they brought them out to the Olympics? They did. They came to the Olympics. They watched me win my bronze in Park wow. City. And the next day we got together, I got to put my bronze medal around their neck and and thank them in person. And, and I have to say, I was more nervous for that than my Olympic race. That's yeah, I can imagine. That's that's hard. It's hard to what what do you do for that person kind of thing? But you know, we just hugged it out pretty much. And, uh, yeah, we we're all grateful that uh, you know Billy Flood, my uh, my donor, lived on in his legacy, and, mm-hmm. and I was here, and we were celebrating life, making the most of a very challenging and, and traumatic situation. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so that's the miracle of organ donation that. Donors say yes, not at an easy time. And uh, yep. we pay tribute to them really as as transplant recipients and everything that we do and trying to pass it on and, and pay it forward to make sure that every other uh, person has a has a chance that's in need for life-saving transplant today has a chance to get one. Yeah, and it's crazy how we've turned our bodies and like with technology into like cars where it's like, oh, I just got a new liver. I got a new this, like that that is something. And now they're talking about would they just grow a pig kidney or something? They did. You're exactly right. And it, and it seemed to have had a very successful launch. So yeah, at 48 years old, you know, in, in uh, 2010, I was 37 years old, the only snowboarder with gray hair at the Vancouver Olympics. And I thought, all right, 20 years, three Olympics, living out of a suitcase <laughs> and riding my snowboard around the world for 20 years, probably time for me to uh, try something else. And now at 48, talking about spare parts, all yep. my uh, all my action sports buddies at you know, in their late forties are getting new hips and new knees. And yeah. New shoulders. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. We're all bionic. Yeah. That happens. So going back to the Olympics. So you, you, first off, I'm curious on that world cup that you won six months in, you were saying your abs weren't even fully back yet, right? Like you weren't fully trained by the time you did that world cup. Is that fair? Or were you peak condition at that point? I blew my knee out horribly in 98 on my birthday of all days, November 18th in, uh, Oh, happy birthday soon. I'm the 14th. Yeah, it's coming up. I'm, I'm getting older. And I blew my knee out horribly, ACL, LCL, MCL, and had a huge surgery and was out for the 98-99 season. And that recovered, and I was back on a snowboard about four months later. But I was told that it takes at least a full year for uh, for that whole recovery and to where yeah. you don't have like random swelling or something in your knee yeah. or they had the surgery. And so, yes, I was snowboarding at seven weeks after my transplant and won a World Cup six months later. But I don't know if I was 100, 100% in terms of core strength and, well, and full you know, muscle recovery. Well, that's why I ask. I'm year, curious. But, Is it that you just had the innate technique? Because in, in an athletic sport like that, you've got, you're competing against people in their peak condition. And so true. for you to win and you're not in peak condition... Do you think it's just you had that history and training and technique that you didn't, it was, yeah, it was the mental. I think it was determination, mental toughness. And um, yeah, I think just the will, you know, to, yeah. for me, I, I barely qualified for the 2002 Olympics. I, I sort of screwed up on a first, uh, the first few qualifiers and came right down to the wire and uh, fortunately performed well at the last couple of qualifiers and just snuck into the 2002 Olympics as the final. And that's qualifier. after placing first in the qualifiers, the Olympics before too. Exactly. The Olympics yeah. before I won the first yeah. two, I was the yeah. first ever named U S Olympic snowboarder and didn't yeah. even have to perform at the third one. And then this time I left it for the last couple and just barely got in. And I remember when I got in, I just said, you know, I've done something nobody else has ever done. I'm the first organ transplant recipient Olympian 
I might as well go win a damn medal now. Nobody's expecting me to do so. It's on our home turf in Salt Lake City, six hours from my home in Aspen, Colorado. I'm going to do it. Yep. I've never had clarity like that before. And uh, you and I talked before about visualization and, and setting your mind to something. And we know how powerful that is in sports. But I really, I experienced that when I was on that Seven West recovery floor at University Hospital. And I was hooked up to all kinds of machines and IVs and, and all sorts of things. And, and I, I just was laying there in the bed, seeing myself snowboarding again at, at Palmer Snowfield at Mount Hood, making those big, beautiful turns. And seven weeks later, I was. And I woke up that day on, uh, on February 16th, which was ironically National Donor Day. Mm-hmm. And uh, woke up on February 16th, 2002. And I said, I'm winning a medal today. And uh, fought through all the rounds and pulled it off on my friend Peekaboo Streets run in Park City Resort. <laughs> That's amazing. And so you were that confident. You went in there. You felt fully prepared to at that point, right? I was, uh, yeah, I was in good form. And, and again, we had 25,000 people at the bottom of yeah. uh, Peekaboo Streets run there in, in Park City and a lot cheering for an American to win a medal that day and the first ever medal in, in snowboard racing. Yeah. And uh, I felt great. It was sort of this magical day too, Eric, where it was sunny, but yet you had kind of these crystals falling down. It looked like a Disney yeah. scene. It was unbelievable. Oh, that's cool. Just beautiful bluebird, uh, Utah. And how that sticks with day. you. Yeah. And how that sticks with you too is awesome. And everybody was stoked. It was a great show and, and the hugest crowd we'd ever seen at a, uh, at Olympic snowboard race. And yeah, uh, it was really fun. And, and of course, all my friends came over from Aspen, my my donor family, everybody that was a part of that. And I felt like that day I was riding down and everybody was on my back and, and helping me get there. Amazing. And so how was the feeling? You you get down there. Last time you experienced it, you turned around, you were in sixth place. This time you turn around. What were you in third right away or were you up, up higher and got beat? Like what, what was, yeah, it was a little bit of a different format where we yeah. ran a head to head sort of March oh, Madness type format. And I, I worked my way through the rounds and ended up in the small final racing for third or fourth. And Got it. I knew what it was like to come up short uh, in 1998, finishing in sixth in Nagano in snowboarding's first Olympics. And albeit fourth is a great uh, accomplishment. And I was there to bring home a, an Olympic medal. And so that was the toughest race of the day. Yeah. And did, at what point in that race did you know you were going to win? Were you right away or did you not realize it till the end? Like at what point were you like, wow, I got this? Well, you know, one of the most dramatic moments in 2002 for me was, you know, the a little 50 cent plastic buckle over the instep of my race boot yeah. uh, exploding on my first run. And after repairing that with duct tape and getting in the start line. And so you actually had your snowboard duct taped on. Yeah, my my boot. When I race, yeah. I wear like a hard shell plastic boot. Yeah. When I'm free riding, I'm just in your in your regular, you know, Burton yeah. drivers or uh, or ions or, or a leather free ride boot. But uh, this day I'm in my race boots and, and a buckle that I'd never broken my career uh, exploded on the first run and I uh, had to resort to a pipe fastener and duct tape to hold it all together and <laughs> get me to the start line of that second run. And I would say to answer your question, when did I know about halfway down the second run, I was really fast on the lower section of Peekaboo's run all day long. It helped me get through a couple, a couple of really tight uh, races and, and get through a few tough rounds. And about halfway down, I started to smile a little bit and I thought, I've got him. And I was racing one of my best friends, Nicolas Huet from France. And I started to smile and I thought, this is my race. I'm winning a medal today. And then the next thought that entered my mind was, don't smile, you idiot. Get to the finish line. <laughs> yeah, focus. Set the riding and <laughs> Superman into that crowd of about 25,000 people. And 
was just pumping my fist and it was a huge party at the end. And yeah. I felt badly for my friend, Nick, because uh, I knew what that feeling was like coming up short yeah. in 1998, as I was parading towards the, uh, or exiting the finish corral, uttering a few four letter words under my breath in yeah. 1998 in, in Nagano. So I gave him a big hug and, you know, that's, that's what's so special about snowboarding. I got involved in it as we talked yesterday in the really early years when it was duct tape, moon boots and glorified shape pieces of plywood. Yeah. And even at the highest level of the sport, you saw that camaraderie and that uh, and that really that friendship emerge, even in a tough situation when one guy wins a medal and the other doesn't. We're still high fiving. And uh, yeah. that's the spirit of our sport. That's what drew me into it in the beginning. And and uh, it's still my favorite thing in the world to do. And my, my passion for board sports started with skateboarding, led to snowboarding. Now I'm an avid kiter, foiler, skateboarding yeah. again with my kids, <laughs> riding my one wheel. And I just... I love that sensation of standing sideways on a board and that centrifugal force sensation of tipping it up on edge and making yeah. it heel side and a toe side or front side and a backside on my surfboard. It's just one of the greatest feelings in the world, that feeling of a bottom turn or a deep powder uh, arc through the snow yeah. floating through there. And I can't get enough of it, Eric. It's something I fell in love with when I was nine or 10 years old. And here I am turning uh, 49 years old soon. And it's still my uh, my favorite thing to do. No, that's amazing. And so speaking of which, so you finished the Olympics in 2002. How long did you stick with snowboarding as a professional? Well, I started uh, my, my real first year on the on the Snowboard World Cup was 1991. Yeah. 1990-91. I did a, an earlier World Cup uh, prior to that at the Breckenridge. I think it was 1987 World Championships. Um, but, you know, started competing a few years after I started around eight, mid-80s. Yeah. And uh, retired after the 2010 Olympics. That was my. Uh, so you my did two more. You, did, you went to two more Olympics after that. I did. Yeah. I missed uh, 2006 in Torino, Italy, went there in uh, in a broadcasting uh, ex uh, role. And that was also a great experience and, and yeah. really fun. And then. Um, what was the reason for missing it? How come you didn't? I just didn't perform at. Uh, oh, got it. On a level to, to qualify. Got it. And so that was a little bit of humble pie, but but yeah. also a good experience. And I built on that. And then bounced back in 2010 yeah. uh, with my good friend, my late friend, Dave Lagashutes. He sponsored us and uh, he started together with his friend Hootie Hooters. And uh, <laughs> I went in 2010 with an independent team with the coach of my choice and my favorite wax technician, a former teammate, and uh, qualified for the 2010 Olympics as Team Hooters. And, uh, I'm sure the <laughs> IOC and uh, the U.S. snowboard team love that. We had Hooters emblazoned down our speed suits uh, That's perfect. the whole season. And it was so fun. Great way to, uh, <laughs> great way to go out. <laughs> yeah, That's awesome. And so did you know what you wanted to do next? Like, were you ready to retire at that point? Like you can still ride for fun all the time, but you're like, I'm done. I've got there. You said you were one of the only guys standing up there with gray hair. Yeah. I was 37 years old in 2010, finished in seventh place at the Vancouver Olympics in the pissing rain. And uh, really, Eric, I, I'd, I'd done everything I wanted to do. It's always great yeah. to win every single race, which I didn't. I had plenty of ugly ones and yeah. plenty of, uh, of podium finishes and, and efforts I was really proud of. But at that time, I just I'd done everything I wanted to do and, and wanted to start a family and move on and uh, start a business. It's interesting. A few years earlier, my uh, late friend, uh, Gary Albert, who was a great mentor to me, drug me in to uh, meet with two guys that owned the local Aspen Snowmass Sotheby's franchise. Mm -hmm. And Gary Albert was a genius. He was kind of uh, the genius behind the distribution and, and creation of Cabbage Patch Kids. 
Oh, wow. and, uh, we nicknamed him the toy maker and he, <laughs> uh, he crushed it in business. And sadly, we lost him a few years ago. But he uh, he said, Chris, I watched my friends in the Philadelphia, New Jersey area. He was really good friends with Ron Jaworski and with um, with uh, the basketball star. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. And, and he saw them sort of struggle with that transition. Mm-hmm. And not that I was making the, the NBA or, or NFL kind of money or or a claim that those guys did. But um, he said, listen, I really want I want you to use this career as a springboard into whatever you're doing next. Yeah. So a few years earlier in around 2007, eight, he drug me in and said, you should talk to these guys that own the local Sotheby's franchise. You should get your real estate license. This is a great career for you. And I went in kicking and screaming. I didn't want to. <laughs> and uh, and. He took me in there and I left and I said, damn it, Gary, you're right. These guys are super cool and this would be a great fit and got my license, got my feet wet, got a few deals done that helped uh, fund and uh, and get me to the 2010 Olympics. And then I retired and uh, and started my real estate business. And 10 years later, uh, I'm an owner together with those guys of Aspen Snowmass Sotheby's. And I'll tell you, Eric, so many lessons I learned on my snowboard and competing at a high level in, in athletics. There, there are so many parallels between athletics and, and a lot of the tough lessons I learned there and a lot of the recipes for success, if you will, or, or the formulas to being great on your snowboard, it really correlates with uh, being successful in business. And now I've got my cake and I'm eating it too. Um, well, I was going to say, it's funny. I'd heard the other day I was talking, I don't remember who the conversation was with, but it was, you know, someone that was asking me about myself. I think it was a meeting I was in somewhere. And she goes, oh, do you like like extreme sports? Like, you know, do you mountain bike, do you snowboard? Do you do that kind of stuff? I'm like, oh, yeah. She's like, you ever been heliboarding? I'm like, oh, yeah. And she's like, yeah, you're a typical entrepreneur. I'm like, yeah, I took it back. Like, what do you mean? Like, and then I thought about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I mostly go on those trips with other friends that run companies. And there's something about, you know, in a positive way, I'm going to say it's a thirst for life that I think extreme sports athletes and entrepreneurs have that it's like you take this crazy risk, whether it's financial risk, personal risk, you know, bodily harm risk, yeah. but it's an appetite for risk that you have that I think actually translates that you're like, yeah, it's risk, but I do feel like I control the risk because it's not blindly jumping into something, going snowboarding and hauling down a mountain. You're the one controlling it still. And yes, there are risks, but you feel like you've got most of the risk is on your back. And I think that there's, that goes with business or with extreme sports. I couldn't agree more. And you look at what, what makes a great athlete. It's not just one thing. Look at somebody at the top of their game, like a Michaela Schifrin or a Tom Brady or Serena Williams or or somebody that's truly great, Gretzky in his heyday or Joe Montana, you name it. It's not just one thing. These guys have the mental toughness. They've got obviously the physical skills, the motor skills. They've got the diet, the the mental aspect. They've got, they, they know every position on the field and what everybody's doing. They're just they're all in and they're training. Everything is just a, a percentage better. And yep. at the end of the day, you see someone like Jean-Claude Keeley or Ingemar Stenmark in their heyday or Tomba or, or you name it, whatever sport in their heyday, they're not doing one thing better that's that's leading to their dominance. They're doing five, six, seven, ten things better. Like yep. Tom Brady is a perfect example. He's defying uh, father time and, <laughs> uh, and the NFL quarterback position. And you can see it's his... It's his sleep, it's his diet, it's his mental toughness. It's all of these things that lead to, you know, kicking somebody's butt in a race by a second or two, which right. Michaela Schiffer do all the time. And there's just same thing in business and, and uh, entrepreneurism is really uh, you're doing a lot of things that you're you're controlling and trying to do better. And 
So I, I love it. And as I was saying, I have my cake and eat it too. I get to uh, split board and ride my snowboard on the best powder days. Yep. Uh, I ride almost every day and, and get to uh, raise my family here in, in Snowmass Village and Aspen Snowmass and do what I love to do. So I feel uh, very fortunate and love welcoming uh, friends like yourself to the Roaring Fork <laughs> Valley and make uh, yep. turns together. I'm not racing anymore. I'm just uh, cruising with friends and having fun, enjoying the ride. Yeah, I'll definitely be enjoying the ride. I'll see if I can keep up, but I'm probably not. You. You're <laughs> always then, welcome. So last two questions for you. Number one, what's next? You know, you've built out this ten, now decade-long real estate career. You're still snowboarding. What do you think is coming next for you? My life's mission is uh, changing the landscape uh, for organ donation, ensuring uh -huh. that everyone that needs a transplant can get one. And we started uh, right after 2002. In 2003, we started the Chris Klug Foundation. It's dedicated to... Uh, helping those uh, in need of a life-saving transplant and, and helping inspire those too that have gone through the transplant process. And that's my life's mission. I love my sales and marketing business. I love uh, living here and, and raising my kids. And I'll tell you, to digress for a second, there is nothing better than snowboarding with my kids. I've done all those things that you talked about, yeah. heliboarding and, and backcountry snowboarding and uh, touring all the mountains, the uh, elk range above our cabin. And I'll tell you, going out and riding with my kids and following them is an absolute highlight of my life right now. And so I hope I'm always uh, standing sideways and uh, enjoying the ride, whatever board sport it is on the water or the snow. Um, going to keep working hard and, and enjoying my real estate sales business the next decade while I'm raising my kids here and uh, ultimately uh, eliminating the weight for uh, anyone in need of a life-saving transplant. That's my goal. That's and amazing. Ultimately, probably spend a little more time in Maui and uh, Baja riding my kite and foil boards, but having too much fun here in the mountains right now. Have you e-foiled yet? I have not done the e-foil, but oh, you I've been try riding it. my foil behind yeah. the boat and on my kites for the last few years. And I tried e-foiling this summer. It's so much fun because you don't need the boat. You don't need anything else. You just go. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll come e-foil with you. You come snowboard with me. Done. Um, all right. And last question for anyone trying to pursue their dreams, someone that is just getting going, whatever that might be, what's one piece of advice you either received or wish you received that can help you think get that? That isn't something you hear all the time, like hard work, determination. Great. But what's something unique that you think could take away? You know, I think the cliche of, of if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. There's a lot of truth to that. And mm -hmm. so, yes, that is, uh, you know, in response to your question, the hard work and the commitment. I think for me, I really enjoyed uh, doing it. And when I enjoy something, again, another cliche, you never work a day in your life. Yep. And really, I loved snowboarding. I loved the culture. I loved the people. I loved being out in the mountains at the mercy of Mother Nature. I loved the whole darn thing. And uh, that really led to me wanting to be better at it, wanting to do better, wanting to get faster, wanting to improve my technique, my equipment, every aspect that makes you great in that sport. And, and I think just finding something you're really passionate about, you enjoy, you're not just saying it, like you really, you're interested in it, you love it. Yep. Uh, I think that's, that's so important. And um, for me, you know, as, a, as an organ transplant recipient, as uh, an Olympic medalist, you don't win an Olympic medal by yourself. You don't get through uh, an organ transplant successfully without a great team behind you. So not only do you need to find something you're passionate about, you really enjoy and is really fun for you, but you also need to somehow find, uh, surround yourself with people that, that share that vision and that goal and, and have a great team of friends, of coworkers, of, uh, of employees, whatever it is, family, friends, 
that uh, maybe share in that goal and that you can do it together because none of us succeed alone. And as a transplant recipient, no one knows that better than me. Amen. Well, Chris, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on Hotcock. You bet, Eric. Love catching up with you and look forward to making some turns hopefully this winter. Me as well, but really excited about it, actually. Yeah, let's do it. Get your new Burton gear. Let's get out there. Amen. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts, all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.